Welcome to the Abridged Presidential Histories with Kenny Ryan, episode 16D, Lincoln and the Law with Brian Dirk. I'm excited to welcome Brian Dirk to the show today. Brian is a professor of history at Anderson University in Anderson, Indiana, and a scholar on Lincoln and the Civil War. He has written numerous books on Lincoln, including Lincoln the Lawyer, which is what we're going to focus on today. What attracted Lincoln to the law? How did this experience as a lawyer prepare him for the presidency, the Civil War, emancipation, and everything else he faced in the White House? Brian, welcome to the show. Well, glad to be here, Kenny. I'd love to start by asking you, what drew you to being interested in Lincoln's legal career? What made you want to dig into that? Well, um, I had the great fortune to study under one of the finest Lincoln scholars in the United States at the University of Kansas when I was getting my PhD, Phil Paladin, um, who sadly passed away now, but he was a Lincoln specialist and I was his grad assistant for various projects. And my dissertation was a comparative study of Abraham Lincoln and Jefferson Davis, the two Civil War presidents. And I had finished that and published it as my first book. And I was kind of fishing around to see what to do next. And fortuitous timing, the state of Illinois, um, for 10 years, between 1990 and 2000, sponsored a project to send people into every courthouse he could possibly have been in and call out every scrap of paper related to his law. Yeah, that sounds like Illinois, right? I mean, they love <laughs> Lincoln in Illinois, man, you know, so they spent this money and they they discovered literally tens of thousands of new documents that had never seen the light of day about his law practice. So all of a sudden, we have this huge cache of data. Um, I'm trained actually as a U.S. legal and constitutional historian. I had done something on Lincoln. It was a perfect marriage of my interest in Lincoln, my interest in the law, and I've just got this humongous cache of information that they put on a DVD-ROM database, which in 2001 was a really huge deal, you know? I mean, it's like, yeah. oh my God, I don't have to go into an archives anymore. This is so cool, you know? So I I mean, I was, I was so geeked up, man. I'm telling you, I, I had that DVD loaded in my computer and I, and students would walk by and I'd go, guys, check this out. I just found a Lincoln Larceny case. They're like, you need a life, man. That is not pretty, you know? But um, I just, I just, I had, I had a cache of information that nobody had ever looked at before and um really lincoln's law practice had been badly neglected because it wasn't well documented to this point so so lincoln he practices law for about 20 years before becoming president it's not the first career he tries though he only lands on after trying like all these other things first how does he eventually land on law well, you know, yeah, he 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 ends up um, leaving home at 21, um, kind of wanders into New Salem, Illinois. He later described himself as, quote, a piece of floating driftwood. And he tried a little bit of everything, as you said, because he has no formal education. Um, he ends up um, serving briefly in the Illinois militia for a, uh, a, a war against an Indian called Black Hawk. It was called the Black Hawk War. Now, Lincoln never saw any action or anything like that, but he met another lawyer um, named uh, John Stewart. And uh, John Stewart said, hey, you know what, Lincoln, you're, you're, you're sharp, you're witty, you've got a good mind. I'm a lawyer. I think you'd make a good lawyer. And um, it's that fortuitous meeting, I think, that kind of sparked this as a, um, a, a good thing. And, you know, it really fit him because back in those days, you didn't need to go to law school. You just had to go get the books and read them. And he was a bookish guy from way back. It, it, it fit his personality. <laughs> 
Do you want to explain a little deeper? Like you, you mentioned, you don't need to go to law school to become a lawyer. What do you need to do? Do you <laughs> just need a friend to vouch for you? Like, what, well, you know, sort of actually, you know, um, uh, now there, there were a couple of law schools in the United States in the 1830s, mostly in urban areas, Boston, New York. They had a couple of law schools attached to universities. But for most places like, say, rural Illinois, uh, you need to get a copy of the books. Um, and this is no small thing, guys. There's, you know, Amazon's not sending out books in 1830s Illinois. So you need to have somebody you know that's got the books, uh, primarily a book uh, by a guy named William Blackstone called Commentaries on the English Common Law, which was so like the American system you could use it, and a couple other things. Um, and you'd read the books, you need to master them, or think you've mastered them. And then you found um, a judge in the district that you wanted to practice. You went to the judge. Um, the judge or a man appointed by the judge would uh, give you an oral exam. There's no written exam. They would ask you a few questions, you know, and they'd, they'd say, oh, okay, I don't think he's a complete moron. Sure, why not? And and, they, and then they'd enter your name in the docket book for that particular district. Uh, Abraham Lincoln is a man of good moral character, et cetera, et cetera. He's admitted to, to the bar. That's all you had to do. You know. And was that true like across the country or is this like this yep. is frontier law, but in Boston there's more. No, that's how it is everywhere. Pretty much. Yeah. Now, like you're making a very good point. I mean, if you're in a more developed urban area, you probably need to do a little <laughs> more, you know. Um, but I mean, what, a great story from Lincoln's own career. When he later on, when he was a lawyer, he acted as an examiner for a judge in the area. Right. And this kid came to this judge and said, I want to be a lawyer. I've studied. And the guy said, well, go see Lincoln. And they were on the circuit. So he was in a hotel room. Kid goes and knocks on Lincoln's door, opens the door, and Lincoln's shaving. And Lincoln says, go sit in the bed. Um, and he asks him a few questions. And Lincoln gets done. He pulls out a piece of paper and writes a note to the judge. Dear judge, give this young man a law license. He's a good deal smarter than he looks. A Lincoln. <laughs> I mean, that, that, that's, that's the level of informality that you're talking about here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, now, in what ways was Lincoln's personality suited for this new career in law that he was given a shot? I mean, you just described him. He said he described himself as floating driftwood yeah, yeah. does floating yeah. driftwood make of lawyers what, what was it about him well i mean you know it's like today i mean it depends on what kind of law you're talking about um you know he's uh, back in those days they didn't specialize uh pretty much every lawyer is a general practitioner you might occasionally find a lawyer who specializes in one thing or the other but for the most part you're going to take anything that comes down the pike um you're going to be doing a lot of um a lot of paperwork and a lot of uh, jury pleadings and lincoln was uniquely well suited for that he has an endless supply of stories and jokes and witty anecdotes that will win over a um, a jury he is um he's a good public speaker um he he made a lot of friends in new salem even when he was the piece of driftwood because he's a piece of driftwood <laughs> kind of fun to be around you know yeah so he's he's personable uh in a in a in a frontier area where you practice the law you, you don't need heavy technical knowledge you need to have some technical knowledge i mean th now this was not completely you know bereft of any knowledge of technical law and he does have some but he has the skills he needs in that setting to succeed quite well because he's a, he's a good speaker. He thinks well on his feet and he is charismatic. I mean, people like him. It helps. Yeah. And I, there are plenty of people who get into careers and you get the sense they don't really enjoy their careers. Did Lincoln love the law? Like, was this something that really energized him? From what I can tell, yeah. I, you know, um, the trouble is we don't really have a lot of reflections by Lincoln on being a lawyer. There's a couple of documents here and there. Um, and I cite a couple of them in my book. Um, but he uh, apparently enjoyed himself. 
Um, the way the law worked back then was you didn't just sit around in your office, okay? You had to go out on the circuit because back in those days, uh, state of Illinois and every other state, uh, they you know, if, if you had 16, say, 16 you know, legal districts, you didn't put 16 judges in there. That cost too much. You got one judge and that poor sap had to travel 16 different places to go do the cases, you know? And what, what they would do is they would, they would, put, they would get everybody together. They'd get maybe a dozen lawyers gather with the judge and they'd go around to all these districts and everybody knew when court day was. And, you know, if, you know, I want to go sue my neighbor, Bob, for stealing his pig, that's my day to do it. So we show up the day before we do this. Uh, most lawyers hated that. Uh, the, the food <laughs> is bad. Uh, you know, the food is bad. The accommodations are worse. They're away from their families. Lincoln, though, loved it. And everybody who knew him said he loved it because he's a he likes the camaraderie. He likes hanging out with the guys. Uh, the judge he traveled with, a man named David Davis, uh, was one of his better friends. Um, you know, he just he liked the ambience. And I don't know. He he seems to have really just enjoyed the travel. And he was one of the only lawyers who traveled the entire circuit uh every chance he got and how did this experience the law the circuit all of it what influence did it have on lincoln how did it shape him and how did it prepare him for a life in politics I think it was huge. Okay. And that's what, that's what I argue in my, my book, you know, I mean, you know, he, he is the most experienced trial lawyer we have ever put in the white house. Uh, John Adams might come fairly close because, mm-hmm. you know, you know, Adams is a lawyer and a, and a good one, you know, yep. but if you look at the, uh, you know, first of all, most of our presidents have been lawyers. Okay. I mean, <laughs> yeah. over half have been lawyers. They're, it's like, they're always like, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll give speeches about this. I'll say Lincoln was a lawyer and the arts go, <laughs> they're all lawyers, you know I mean? Come on, you know, but I mean, there's lawyers and there's lawyers, you know, um, and most <laughs> of the people who were lawyers didn't want to be lawyers. They wanted to get the heck out of that and go into politics. You know, people forget, for example, that Franklin Roosevelt was a lawyer and he hated every minute of it, you know, um, but Lincoln was a dedicated lawyer. I mean, the guy practices for thousands of cases. So this is no small part of man's life. This is the way he earns his living. This is the way he goes about interacting with other people on a daily basis. And that's kind of what I argued in my book. I was like, this teaches him how to persuade people. It teaches him how to work on problem solving skills. And most importantly, I think it teaches him how to work with people who are difficult. Because when you stopped and when you, because I looked at all those cases, you know, and I was like, oh my God, he sees people at their worst. You know, people, you know, people, <laughs> yeah. when you think about it, I mean, yeah. you know, he handles, he handles divorce cases. That's not pleasant. Okay. He has criminal law cases. He has a handful of murder cases. He got everybody's mad at everybody in his law practice. That's going to teach you how to work with people that don't get along. And boy, that that is a very nice preparation to be a president because when you're president, ain't nobody getting along, you know, and especially during a civil war. And in fact, uh, well, I mean, this goes back to my first book. I made that comparison with Jefferson Davis. Yes. Jefferson Davis was not a lawyer. He was, um, you know, a military man. And Davis was not nearly as good at Lincoln as getting people to work with each other. So I think it's a big deal. Yeah. So getting closer to him becoming president, you know, shortly before he becomes president, the Supreme Court passes down a huge ruling on slavery. Uh, the Dred Scott case that Lincoln's going to have to grapple with a bit. And uh, first off, please correct me if I'm wrong. I want to make sure I'm summary, summarizing the outcome of this right. Uh, Dred Scott is a case where the Supreme Court rules that African-Americans can never be citizens and Congress can't restrict slavery and the territory. So I have that right. That nailed it. Absolutely. It, it's, it's a complicated case. 
Um, if I ever want to really punish my students, I have them read parts of it just because I just want to know I hate them, you know, because it's just a really <laughs> yeah. hard thing to read. No, I'm kidding. But no, um, um, yeah, you it, got it that was right. pretty obtuse. <laughs> oh, no, God. Oh, oh, my God. I mean, Roger Tawney couldn't write with a gun to his head. OK, but that's another <laughs> story. OK, but um, yeah, it, you got it. You nailed it perfectly. Uh, it's the it's, it's the most notoriously racist court opinion in American history because Tawney basically says, no, it's not just slaves can't bring a lawsuit because that was what was happening. A slave was suing for his freedom. He said, hey, dude, this isn't just about slaves. Black people can't bring suit because they can't ever be equal citizens. It's shocking in its racism. Yeah. So what did Lincoln think of this when it first comes down? You know, like, is this something that lawyers, they see these rulings come down? Do they chat about it? Like, oh, that was stupid. <laughs> or, oh, yeah, I agree. Or, you know. Oh, I'm sure he did. You know, um, I mean, he's by this point, this is 1857. Yes. He is a... Um, he's still a lawyer. I mean, he's practicing cases up to the day he leaves for DC, but he's a bit less of a lawyer and a bit more of a politician in that by 1857, he's a leader in the, at least in the Illinois Republican party and is making a name for himself. So when he, when he sees Dred Scott, he's going to see it politically at the same time as legally. And in a series of speeches he gives after the decision, it's kind of complicated, but what he basically says is, Tawny is wrong. He's wrong on the law. He's wrong on the history. He's wrong because Tawny had made an historical argument. He said, we've never let black people have any rights. And, and, and Lincoln says, no, we have before. OK, so he says he's wrong on everything. And he said, you know, we have to respect the opinion, even while we understand that it shouldn't really have much legal force because it's so wrong. In other words, it doesn't have legitimacy. You know, a court can just say something, you know, it can go claim that the moon's made out of cheese. Well, it doesn't make the moon mean made out of cheese. And, you know, it, 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 it becomes an outlier. Lincoln's not real clear in this. He has to walk very carefully because you can't stand up in front of an audience in 1857 and say the Supreme Court sucks. We're not doing what they say. <laughs> yeah. You know, you, you can't do that. I mean, these days you probably can. OK, but that back in that. That, that period, the court is very prestigious. He can't just out and out saying, we're going to disobey this law. I mean, that would have killed his political career. But what he's saying is they made the decision. It lacks legitimacy because it is an error in every single way. And we must work to someday get this overturned. <laughs> so so he may not come out and say those things. But when he becomes president, he kind of acts that way. You know, sure. he, he <laughs> limits the spread of slavery. Uh, he lets African-Americans join the army, you know, something that's oh, yeah. limited to citizens. Oh, yeah. so th- the thing I've really been wondering, how does he do this? How does he get around Dred Scott? Well, war powers. I mean, that's the constitutional foundation for everything he does during the war. I mean, the great irony of the Civil War is had the conf- had the southern states not seceded and started a war, Lincoln wouldn't have been able to do nothing or very little. I mean, it, w- it would have been a much more difficult road for him. He, he ran on a platform, as you say, of limiting the spread of slavery into the Western territories, despite the fact that a decision by the Supreme Court said, hey, you know what, you can't do that. So you know, it's hard to imagine a peacetime Lincoln presidency because he's the only president in American history whose entire presidency from day one to the day he dies is bracketed by war. You know, I mean, I, there's no other president you can say that. So it's really hard to imagine. But a peacetime Lincoln would have run right up against Dred Scott because it is, after all, the law of the land. Now, he would have probably argued, well, the court has its interpretations. I've got my interpretation. He would have done what he could to overturn it. It would not have been easy and it would have taken a very long time. In some ways, oddly enough, the South gives him a gift. 
They yeah. secede. He goes to war and pretty much everything you just mentioned, you know, um, you know, uh, putting uh, black men in the army. Uh, the Emancipation Proclamation is a war powers act. I mean, basically, his whole legal foundation is I can do this as a way to win the war. That's that's the foundation for this. So I'd love to hear a bit more about this because you say war powers is the answer. Yeah. But. Unless I'm wrong, the Constitution doesn't say in war the president can end, you know, block slavery. No, and it does not. not it's not specifically, no. So no. is this like a game of chicken, kind of? Like, is he bluffing <laughs> when he does this? Well, no. Now, now in the U.S. Constitution, it doesn't say that. Um, however, there is a, um, a strong body of international law, which, which says, and we're not sure how much Lincoln was aware of this. He was a lawyer. He didn't practice any international law. But I'm sure he was advised by his attorneys general, by he had good lawyers in the room with him there there's a body of 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 case law and of commentary in on international law that says that it is a belligerent right and in a war one belligerent can seize the property of another belligerent including slaves and it explicitly says that so the first step to emancipation is confiscation you know the the the, the congress passes uh, two confiscation acts it's extremely complicated i don't want your podcast to go 4 hours okay but <laughs> no it's at the at the end of the day it's a two step process the first step is lincoln backs the efforts to seize slaves as what was called contraband of war it's like okay man if i go on a battlefield and i see a confederate cannon sitting there i can take the cannon why can't i take the slave you know, if, if they're if, if they're going to call them all property and we know that they're using slaves to dig fortifications, to drive wagons, to grow food for the Confederate Army, I, 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 I can take the other stuff. I can certainly take them. So the first step is to take the slaves under the Confiscation Act so that when slaves showed up behind enemy behind Union lines and they were running away by the thousands, they didn't have to go back again. The second step then was the Emancipation Proclamation. And what about that explains like kind of uh, Emancipation Proclamation yeah. uh, and, mm-hmm. and doing those things. Mm-hmm. What about the blocking of slaves in those territories? How, how does he rationalize war powers allow me to say that? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you know, he didn't do a whole lot with that direct question during the war. You know, I mean, I, I, it's it's an interesting question. I've thought about writing about this sometimes. So I maybe, maybe you'll see me write this out. <laughs> I, mean, I will put you in the acknowledgments. Okay, okay, Kenny. Yes. Okay, but uh, yeah, there you go, man. Sure, yeah, it's your fault. Okay, <laughs> I'll blame you. No, I'm kidding. But um, I just, you know, I do wonder because I wonder what exactly he could have done as a peacetime president. It would have been. It would have been hard, okay, because, I mean, again, this is counterfactual history. We're not supposed to do this, but what the heck? We're going to do it anyway, okay? Suppose the South stays. Yeah, they they stay, okay? That means you've got a very powerful presence of the South on the Supreme Court and in Congress because those guys don't go into the Confederacy. They stay there. If, as president, he and his his party had introduced any kind of legal block to taking slaves into the Western territories, he would have run smack into Dred Scott. Because Dred Scott says you can't do that, and then there would have been some kind of huge, con- you know, constitutional showdown. You know, um, hard to say. I, I think he probably would have been put in the position of basically waiting for Roger Tawney to die and then <laughs> replacing him with which, which, by the way, Tawney hangs on by yeah. his bony claws to that <laughs> office till 1864. You know, I think he would have been reduced. I'm just speculating here, man. Okay, I really am, but I think he would have been. Um, he would have been. Um, pursuing the ground game, as they say, uh, progress by inches. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, he he might have, for example, as the commander in chief of the armed forces, ordered the army not to enforce slave laws in the territories. Okay. But anything, anything he did like that, though, he would have run right into the Supreme Court because they had made that very difficult. 
Okay, you mentioned the Supreme Court. That's another thing I've been wondering. Where are they during the Civil War? <laughs> what are they doing? I mean, yeah. I, I imagine they're mostly appointed by slaveholders. I would just have expected <laughs> there to be oh. a very Southern opposition there. What's going on? Well, that's just it. Yeah, I mean, the court's still there, obviously. They're still, they're still in session. Um, they... Um, I, you know, I'm trying to remember this. Um, I, I believe at the end of the day, Lincoln is able to appoint, I think, three justices during the course of the war. I believe that's right. Um, if somebody calls in and says, hey, that guy's an idiot. Sorry about that. It may have been, I think it's about that number. Um, but that's a point that I actually raised um, in an article I wrote about this. People talk about the fact that the Emancipation Proclamation didn't actually free a single slave. I'm sure you've heard that before, right? Sure. Because it's written in a way that it doesn't free any of the slaves in um in territories that we already hold. Well, I I think that the court is in the back of his mind because think about that. If if somebody's going to bring a lawsuit Mm -hmm. saying you didn't get to take my slave away, he was going to be, it was going to be a slaveholder from like Kentucky or Missouri or one of the, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, so Lincoln, that's the reason Lincoln didn't free slaves there. It it wasn't just politics. It was the law because the last thing on earth he wanted was the U.S. Supreme Court under Roger Taney, the author of the Dred Scott, to rule in emancipation. And in fact, I've heard rumors from scholars who work with Taney that there were there were rumors that he had already written an opinion striking down the Emancipation Proclamation. He was just waiting for a case to tack it on to. Fortunately for everybody, he got ill and died in 1864, so it never came to pass. But it's a real problem for Lincoln. He faces a hostile court that he's slowly replacing with judges that are sympathetic to uh, Republican-based judges. But, you know, I mean, the Dred Scott decision was seven to two in favor of that racist opinion. There are still five of those judges on the court when Lincoln issues the Emancipation Proclamation. In other words, the Dred Scott majority is still there, and he's scared to death. That I think, I think it's like, oh my God, I can't let that old man have this because if he does, it's going to get really ugly. You know. And any idea why it doesn't happen? Like, does, is it just as simple as nobody starts a lawsuit? Well, is it as simple well, as like Lincoln? Man, Lincoln wrote the, the Emancipation Proclamation in such a way. That there's no litigants. I mean, he doesn't. I mean, he, you know, you have to have you have to have a, a theoretically a loyal U.S. citizen to bring a lawsuit in the Supreme Court, right? I mean, Robert right. Lee is not going to bring a lawsuit. He's trying to shoot people, okay? <laughs> right. But right. you know, so so you can you can just push them off the stage. It's the it's the slaveholders in Kentucky, in Missouri, Maryland, uh, Delaware. Believe it or not, Delaware had slaves like five, but he still had slaves, okay? You know, um, those are the guys you got to worry about because they're still U.S. citizens. They're still loyal, and they can say, "Hey, man, you took my." slaves without due process and violated the fourth amendment of the constitution but he wrote the proclamation in such a way that their slaves weren't taken away you know he's only he's only he's only taken slaves from people in territories he doesn't control and he gets blasted about that but if he had done otherwise if it just took one guy it would have taken one slaveholder who was a loyal citizen to lose his slave under the proclamation to get that thing on the court and it would have been a disaster so it's as simple as Lincoln didn't get challenged here because he wrote it in such a way that there was no door for someone. Yeah, yeah he, he, he's a lawyer. I'm going back to the question <laughs> at the beginning of this podcast. He, no, no, he's a lawyer. He knows how to do this. It's like, and, you know, history is really unkind to him. I hear this all the time from people. Well, Lincoln didn't actually free any slaves. Well, dude, if he had tried, it would have it would have crashed and burned because I think the court would have ruled against him. And then what's he going to do? You know, I mean, once he does that, you know, and then on top of that, people forget the Emancipation Proclamation was only an executive order. Okay, and that means that it could have been overturned by the next president who got into office, which is why immediately after he issues the Emancipation Proclamation, he is he is working on getting the 13th Amendment ratified because that's the only way that this is going to be permanent. 
Okay, so we've, we've talked a lot about the Emancipation Proclamation. Yeah. Let's talk about the 13th Amendment. Oh, sure. Yeah. How do Lincoln's experiences as a lawyer help him make that a success, both in, uh, let's start first by just how he shapes it, how he writes it, the way he structured it, and yeah, then maybe yeah. after that, how he passes it. <laughs> well, he, he didn't actually, he didn't actually write it. It was, it was right. lawyers in Congress. Okay. But, but so what's point... he involved? Was he like talking yeah. to them? Yeah. Oh yeah. Your, your, your point is very valid. Okay. Um, we have to remember, okay, look at the bill of rights. Okay. There's the first 10 amendments. Those are ratified right after the constitution. They're hardly involved. They're part of the constitution basically. Okay. I, I, I will, I will give my students 20 bucks if they can tell me what the 11th and 12th amendments actually do. Okay. I'll have that. That kid is going to law school, man. If you know that, okay. Because, well, because they're procedural. Okay. They're, they're about fixing the elections. Nobody remembers those. The 13th amendment is the first time in American history that we're talking about amending the constitution to fundamentally change something the founding fathers did. And it was extremely controversial back then. There's a real belief. You don't amend the constitution because then you're calling Washington and all the rest a bunch of idiots. They didn't get this right. You're you're questioning the great founders. Okay, that seems so sensical. Exactly. To to us, it does because you're like, dude, you got to make this thing every once in a while, right? I mean, come on, you know. But there was a tremendous amount of opposition. So you know, he he he's 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 needing the amendment to ratify what he thinks is the great moral achievement of his presidency. He is much more hands on on this amendment. To go back to answer your question, um, the documentation is not really there, but there are lots of rumors that he was talking to the um, the authors of the amendment. Mm-hmm. Uh, he did meet with the congressman who came to the White House. How deeply he was involved in the strategy, it's really difficult to tell. Uh, we do know that he did, um, if you've ever seen the movie Lincoln, uh, it shows him schmoozing uh, congressmen for votes. We're pretty sure he did that, but we don't know to what extent, and we don't know exactly what he's saying. But, but, but guys, I mean, honestly... Presidents weren't supposed to be involved in amending the Constitution. Okay, this is supposed to be Congress doing this. You know, this is if you go look at the the Constitution, the president's got no role in amending anything. As a matter of fact, when Lincoln puts his signature on the Thirteenth Amendment, it was superfluous. He didn't have to do that. There's there's nothing in the Constitution. (laughs) He just said, "I want my name in this thing, man," because I worked hard for this. You know, so yeah, he's he's very hands on. He's schmoozing people. He's negotiating with people, and that's a lawyerly skill if I ever saw one. You know, because I mean, go back to his law practice days. He's you know he's trying to mediate cases. One of the few times he reflects on being a lawyer, he says, "Avoid litigation. Try to get the parties to negotiate a settlement." And if you can't keep them out of the courtroom because everybody's happier that way, you learn to get people to work together. So I think that plays into it as well. Can, can you tell me a little bit in detail what it takes to get this thing passed? Because it's, it's <laughs> funny. I see a lot of illusions allu- out there. If he tells us, yeah. like, hey, like, well, do whatever it takes, maybe even like, here's some money, like, you know, yeah, all, it's well, this yeah. <laughs> this is the one area I'm re- we just need to get this done. There's there's no evidence that Lincoln was actually bribing people. Um, okay. I, he, he wasn't saying here, <laughs> here's 50 bucks. I'm at your vote. No, he's not. He's not. He's not like that. OK, um, there's pretty good evidence that he's probably swapping um, favors. But then again, Lincoln was always a politician. He was always a party politician. He, he this was not this was not frowned upon at the time much. And um, there's pretty good 
pretty good reason to believe that he's calling in congressmen who are, who are wavering and saying, look, if you'll do this for me, I'll see to it that your guy becomes the you know, postal clerk in this town in your district or whatever. OK, um, you know, these days that would smack of something unsavory in those days before civil service reform, before people start finding that sketchy. It, it really wasn't. So he's not bribing people. He's probably just swapping favors to manipulate the votes that he needed. OK, and it was a close call at the end of the day. You know, um, I forget the exact count, but it did pass. But yeah, it was narrow, yeah, yeah. very narrow. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, last question I got for you. Sure. Sure. What lessons in leadership can we learn from Lincoln, the lawyer? Oh, oh, man. Uh, my, my my to me, the bottom line is pragmatism. I mean, I think that's the whole pitch of my book. Um, I actually, my last, the next last chapter in the book, I called it Greece. And what I meant by that was in the law, Lincoln learns the value of grease, lubrication, that if you're going to get people to work together, you have to, you have to make the wheels work smoothly. You've got to cajole, you've got, you've got to compromise. You've, you, 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 you can't be a purist and go into the law and get what you want, because if you do, you're not going to get what you want. You're going to do more damage than good. And I think that is the key point in his law practice, that and just learning how to work with different and difficult people. I think that is the number one thing that the law teaches him is how to function when you've got a bunch of people around you that don't like each other and don't like you. Because time and time again, during the Civil War, in so many words, he's saying to all these generals and stuff, it's like, dude, I don't care. Just do it. Okay. I mean, I mean, seriously, I mean, look, I mean, look, look at how well, I mean, he actually had to deal with George McClellan. That's not a job I'd want. Okay. You know, and, and did as good a job as you can imagine. He dealt with these prickly people in a fairly effective way. And I think the law practice taught him how to do that. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Brian. Really enjoyed the chat. Uh, listeners, if you'd like to hear more from Brian, he has a number of books out there you can read, including Lincoln, the lawyer. Thank you again, Brian. Okay. Great to see you, Kenny. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Abridged Presidential Histories. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, tell your friends about the show, and leave a five-star review on your podcast listening platform of choice. It's always good to hear from you. You can also follow the show on Facebook at Abridged Presidential Histories or on Twitter at APH Podcast. If you'd like to support the show, you can look it up on Patreon or go directly to www.patreon.com slash Abridged Presidential Histories. This helps me buy books and pay to host the program. And thank you to everyone who has contributed so far. The music in today's podcast is a public domain recording of the United States Army Old Guard Fife and Drum Corps. In our next episode, we will wrap up our series of interviews on Lincoln by talking to historian Jonathan White about what the Union Army thought of Lincoln, the GOP, slavery, and the election of 1864. Given that six of our next seven presidents will have played some role in this army, this is an excellent primer for the presidencies ahead. That's next time on Abridged Presidential Histories.